The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Ryan Russillo Podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip from free high speed Wi Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more. Book direct at lq.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Yeah, I want to start with some good news, and that's going to be the Phoenix Suns. We're going to start with some bad news, and that's this Brian Flores story. Um, we're going to have Joe Thomas on it as well, and then we'll do life advice at the end. Okay, as always. All right, first off, uh, let's do the Phoenix Suns story, because this doesn't feel like we're treating them like a 41-19. That's who the Phoenix Suns are. 50 games in, they're 41-9. We actually put some only three games up on Golden State. Uh, I'll touch on this a little bit later in the open, but I, I think it's very predictable. We already kind of know who Phoenix is, even though it's still only a year into this. NBA Finals first year with Chris Paul and this group. And here they are destroying everybody. Um, and like any, I don't know. I, I guess, are we holding out hope that it's a wide open field because they haven't won before? Like if they had won last year, we're able to hold off Milwaukee. Would we all be saying it's Phoenix in one tier by itself and then everybody else? We probably would be. We'll get to some of the rules and why that kind of happens. But let's look at the resume a little bit. Okay, remember they started one and three. And I remember watching in the first week, and I go, this doesn't look very good. Like, this is the one and done kind of fluky thing. Does this mean does this mean Chris Paul's getting old? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. Because from that point on, they've gone 40 and six. Uh, they had an, they've won, what, 11 in a row? They had an 18-game winning streak. They went from one and three to 19 and three at that point. Um their clutch numbers are incredible, and that's really telling because look at last night's game against Brooklyn. And by the way, with Brooklyn, like they fought, they hung. I guess Harden's hurt a little bit. Kyrie was kind of going superhero there for a little while. It got to 95-92. They brought Chris Paul back in, and it was like, all right, yeah, actually, this game is over. Sorry. Sorry for thinking you guys had a chance because that's what they do. Uh, as I've talked about deciding who the real stars are, who the real guys are, not the guys just scoring 20 a game. It's those last five minutes of a playoff game. That's when we decide. That's when we judge you. And we get the best indicator of who you really are when it's everything is just kind of up to you, right? Um, in the regular season, when you're seeing a bad team kind of hang around with a good team, those last four or five minutes is when those teams decide, okay, enough of this. And that's what Chris Paul does for your basketball team. Their clutch numbers are 20 and 3 in clutch games. Um, they shoot 60% in the clutch area, right? Five minutes or less, score within five points. So Phoenix shoots 60%. The number two team in clutch shooting are the Clippers at 52%. Every other team is under 50%. Shots get harder, right? 
Maybe hold on to a whistle a little bit longer. Not for Phoenix. They're shooting 60%. You want to know who's last? The Pacers are last. They shoot 36%. (laughs) That's, That's absurd. Let's look at the individuals. Booker, who my only knock on him was that as much as I love him, and I do, I felt like he gets talked about like he's one of these absolute elite shooters, and he is in certain areas, but not necessarily from three because he was between 32 and 35% the previous three, uh, previous three seasons. He's at 38%. Uh, he's 25, 5, and 4. He can handle the basketball um, when he needs to because of the times pre-Chris Paul where they're basically having him be this kind of combo guard. Um, and he's terrific. He's terrific. And the shooting numbers are up as well for him. Uh, the no all-star part, which they were discussing last night in the broadcast, which is always kind of funny. It's like, hey, not to take anything away from the starters. It's like, no, no, the next sentence you are going to say is going to take away from the guys who were the starters. I had a vote this year, by the way. Uh, the East was pretty easy. The front court, back court split wasn't the greatest. Like, I was trying to find a way to go outside of Trey Young, who was my starter, along with DeRozan. I was like, if I can put DeRozan in the front court, because he's kind of a small forward, he really is. Um, is there any way I can then get another guard on there? And at first I was thinking Darius Garland. And then I was like, you know, the, the wins are close enough with Charlotte only a few wins behind at the time I voted. And I go, you know, I might have to go LaMelo over Darius. But I was trying to figure out how to get one of those guys on. But once DeRozan stayed in the backcourt, I had to go with DeRozan. And then I felt like Durant's injury was new enough that it was still important that he was voted as a starter. And then Embiid, who's literally, he'd be the MVP in a landslide right now if it weren't for Jokic. Um, then on the west side, I'll admit, all right, the backcourt, pretty simple, Steph and Ja. <laughs> and I went into it going, I'm not going to vote for Gobert, right? And it's Jokic, it's LeBron. But the way the frontcourt, backcourt thing is split up, I was like, oh, you're voting for Gobert. Like, you have to. There's no, And then Wiggins is a starter. Wiggins has had a nice season. He should not be a starter in the All-Star game. He just shouldn't. And if we were really looking at this the right way, that's probably Booker's spot because of this record, them having the one seed and not, I don't think there's one of us that would rather have Wiggins over Booker. Congrats on your turnaround in your career. So that part is a little frustrating. Paul doesn't have the numbers, although he's steady. Okay, once again, by the way, Chris Paul has played in all 50 games at 36 years old. And remember with OKC, when I told you guys that story about when he came into the Thunder and he talked to Billy Donovan, and Billy Donovan was like, look, we're going to protect you. We're going to figure out a way to do this. We're going to limit your minutes. We're going to give you rest. We're going to do all this stuff. So, you know, it's maintenance. You know, we're rebuilding, but we appreciate you being here. A little guidance. And Chris Paul's like, nah, fuck that. I'm playing. He played 70 of 72 games. That's why I love this motherfucker. All right? That's why I'll always love Chris Paul. Um, his numbers, like I said, the points and shooting are down a little bit through the first 50. His assists are the best in eight years. His rebounding has been the same for a decade. As you get older, the rebounds go away. They don't for Chris Paul. And as we saw at the end of the game last night, it's like, all right, you guys got it to 95-92. Whatever. I'm in charge. Phoenix off a make. This team is locked in. Bridges out there. And I know Bridges can have, you know, you could argue some of the numbers, but he's still someone there. Even with eight missing uh, 21 games this year, and he just came back after missing seven. He was back last night. They're 18 and three without him. There's more depth. They know exactly what everybody else is doing. They have a little bit more options now with the size of JaVale McGee, and they're finally paying, or no, excuse me, they're not paying Jalen Smith. They're definitely not doing that because they declined his option, which is absurd. 
Simmons has been on this and he was right on it. Like that's one of the most ridiculous cheap decisions an owner can make when you take somebody that high and you're not playing them and the number's low and you're just like, yeah, we're actually going to decline the option. Um, and I actually think he's kind of talented, even if you feel like he's still a bit raw and can't hold up the way they need him to. Phoenix should be talked about as the clear favorite. Yes, I still hold out some weird hope for Milwaukee. No, it's not weird. Let me retract that. Retract that. I hold out for a hope for Milwaukee because we all should. But there are some numbers that are a little weird. And it's like, how come they haven't really gone on that tear? And they, I think Hollinger had it. They're plus 12 points per 100 with Giannis, Drew, and Middleton last year. That number's down. I know there's no Brooke Lopez, but it shouldn't be this middling. You know, that it shouldn't be 50 games in and they're still kind of close. But I'm, I'm still not going to worry about it all that much. Every Nets result, I don't know what the fuck to do with those. I love what Embiid has done with the Sixers here, but I don't love the overall part of it. Um, and, you know, then you've got the Heat, who I think you have to take really as serious as any team in the East. But we do like new, which Phoenix still isn't. And we love big headlines and bad. <laughs> That's what the Lakers are. Golden State, in a weird way, isn't new, but they feel new because we've been waiting for Clay for two years, and it's been up and down, which is fine. And we wonder if Wiseman can give him anything in a matchup against a Phoenix front line or something like that. Utah, everybody is sick of, uh, as you can see the Gobera vote and how that went. But Phoenix is getting treated like, I kind of have this list of conference finals participants who... I'll just go over the last five or six years where you're like, yeah, you were in a conference finals, but mm, is that really who you are? When we had Atlanta last year, which the way they played and they, they've turned it around, but I don't, I'm not going to put them in this group, but some could, some could look at the Atlanta Hawks and go, oh, well, you got there. What I mean by this is you get to a conference finals, but it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean like, hey, the next step is an NBA championship. Uh, Boston made it in 20 and lost to the Heat. Okay. But that was, you know, all right, yep, you're in the conference finals. Uh, Boston's on this list a few times for me. Portland in 2019, like, all right, cool. You made the Western Conference Finals, but now what? And that's played out. Boston in 18, which was kind of a cool little story. They almost you know, won a game seven against Cleveland, um, but that didn't happen. I mean, the, for all the Boston stuff, I mean, it happened to them in 72 when they played Cleveland and lost in five games because that team shouldn't have even been in the Eastern Conference Finals, which I always think is kind of funny when people look at Brad Stevens and be like, well, he can't get out of the Eastern Conference Finals. And I'm like, I can't believe he got there every year with these teams. He got there three out of four years. Those teams weren't great. Uh, go back to Atlanta, who's a one seed in 2015, but all of us, by the way, you want to talk all-star voting? Go back and read some of those stories. I did. Maybe you don't have to because you have more of a life, but Atlanta, there was a media push. Should the Atlanta Hawks have five all-stars? <laughs> Look at their record. Like, no, I don't think they should have five all-stars. And they lost in four straight games uh, to Cleveland in 2015. Those teams, it was okay to go, all right, cool conference finals accomplishment, but I don't know that you're really building on this the same way. Phoenix made it to the NBA finals, and it feels like they're kind of getting treated this way. If they had won last year, they were talked about completely different. They lost in six games. They blew the lead. Giannis had 50 in a closeout. And after not making free throws, made them all. And Chris Paul had surgery after the finals. So I think now I've convinced myself we need to start looking at this as Phoenix in its own tier and all the confusion underneath them. I want to talk about this Brian Flores story here. Uh, absolute bombshell of a news story suing the NFL for discrimination and part of the evidence of text messages that he had with Bill Belichick. Belichick 
thinks he's texting with Brian Dable, who was named head coach of the Giants this week. Um, and he's texting with Brian Flores. And the problem is that Flores hadn't interviewed yet for the Giants. And he was going to do the interview. And he's he's sitting there thinking he he has the job because of the text message. Like, you have the inside track. And then Belichick's like, oh, I'm so sorry. As Flores is like, he realizes it's Brian Flores and not Dable. So, um, the Rooney rule. I remember when it first came about, you know, named after the Steelers owner, Mike Tomlin, who, you know, has turned into one of the best coaches in the league. And I think from the inception, it was, okay, well, this is a thing that the league will do to force the issue, which is a long-going issue. And I can't believe in 2022, we're looking at some of these numbers, where I look at the NBA going, hey, the NBA this past offseason, this was a real priority. If you know anything about this league, it was, the number needs to be higher. And owners responded. GMs, front offices, they responded. And now I think it's, what, 14 black head coaches in the NBA out of 30, um, where the NFL, we'll see what the final number is after this hiring cycle, but it's going to be a low number. But I think in the beginning, the idea was to force the issue by getting people in front of the decision makers that maybe wouldn't normally have that chance, which in itself is fucked up, right? Like, oh, I'm now I have to interview, so I will. Ooh, look at this. Now we have a better candidate, and we never would have tried this before. So even though I think if it's okay, if you'll allow me to, to suggest that the beginning, the rule was trying to fix a problem the execution of it and what it really, the definition of it is pretty fucked up. And now the execution of the entire thing is actually more insulting to any black candidate than not interviewing. Right? Like, that's why the Lions, I remember back with Mariucci, they were like, we'll just take the fine and punishment because we're not going to do that to somebody that doesn't have a chance because Matt Millen was going to hire Mariucci. And that was it. And they were like, fine, we'll take the criticism. We'll take her. That is actually a far more honest way of doing business. So something that started with good intentions has been exposed as demeaning, insulting, and, and honestly, um, you know, a waste of time. I, I know the counter to this would be, well, what about the times of the Rooney Rule gave somebody an opportunity to interview and then, okay, but the whole point is, why can't that guy just get the interview in the first place? If he's good enough to become your head coach because of the Rooney Rule, then maybe you're doing a bad job of evaluating who you should hire uh, or who your potential candidate base should be in the first place. So uh, this story is going to be massive, and I clearly don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, this is the kind of thing where corporate types don't like this stuff. So Flores may have really, really put his own career in jeopardy. And for a young guy that a lot of people still think deserved a job and never should have lost his in the first place, um, he's doing something here that's that's very different. And I would just hate if him doing something, trying to right a wrong, turns into him never getting a gig again. We're going to talk to Joe Thomas about this more. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows 
on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Joe Thomas, NFL Network, and more importantly, uh, all pro tackle. Do you have, are there plaques for that around the house? Because you have a lot of them. Uh, I have one trophy I think that I have that's related to being an offensive lineman. It's right over here. It's my Outland trophy from uh, college being the outstanding interior lineman. And uh, that's it. I don't think they give you anything for all pro other than, you know, the pat on the back and uh, you get to buy yourself a steak dinner to congratulate. But that's about it. I don't think they have official plaques. Maybe they should start doing that. That'd be kind of cool. All pro's a big deal, though. Like when, I mean, obviously you're a Hall of Famer, but when, when you make all pro and you make it a bunch, like I think Brady has six. And yeah. then you go, how the hell did he only have six? You go, well, look, <laughs> you know, some guys have statistical seasons that are nuts. He's going up against mm-hmm. Peyton Manning in the same conference the entire time. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, what do you what do you have? Do you have six or seven? I think I have six first teams and a, and a couple second teams. <laughs> um, but you're you're exactly right. Like Pro Bowl, they're naming three tackles in the AFC, three in the NFC with all pro, especially now because they changed the voting a few years ago, right towards the end of my career, where they were voting two tackles first team, but now they vote a left and a right tackle. So you literally have to be the best left tackle in the game to be first team all pro these days. Yeah, because that's exactly my point with all pro is that we'll have arguments about different quarterbacks. You'd be like, well, he was all pro. And I'm like, so are 16 guys once everybody gets done not yeah, showing the pro up. Bowl. Exactly. <laughs> the pro yeah. bowl. <laughs> yeah, we had Vince Young one year in the pro bowl um, and he was like the 10th alternate. Like literally all you have to do is be in the top half of the NFL at quarterback and with all the people that back out because Brady never played. And a lot of times the other good quarterbacks were playing in the Super Bowl or they were kind of getting ready to take a little break and go golfing and uh, some of those celebrity golf outings. And so you're ending up with like the 10th or 12th best quarterback in the uh, AFC at that time uh, in the Pro Bowl. So not quite as amazing as when you make uh, the all pro team. That's for sure. All right, cool. Glad we did the resume. That was a better resume intro than I had planned on here. <laughs> uh, offensive line, I, I've always, maybe I've, I'm always spoiled. And I think I've talked to you about this before, seeing Dante Scarnecchia up close when I lived in Boston oh, yeah. and just knowing that Whenever they had issues or you didn't think they had enough talent, they were always able to kind of fix it. That's something mm-hmm. I always thought you could at least adjust some things. The quarterback also has to be aligned with you to be like, hey, we need we need help from you back there to let us yeah. hold up if we're overmatched. We've seen Cincinnati overmatched so many different times. It was ugly against Tennessee. It was it was better against Kansas City. Where are you? I, this isn't even about the teams or the matchup yet, but where are you philosophically like heading into the tunnel at halftime, knowing you're having a hard time up front, maybe not you so mm-hmm. much, and how that can be fixed? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because you talked about um, as an offensive line, your performance is not just the five of you. It's the scheme that you're running. Like when Kyle Shanahan came to the Browns, um, I was really excited because I'd watched his scheme and he puts his offensive line in positions to succeed. There's not a lot of drop back pass, which is the hardest thing for offensive lines to do is just, hey, quarterback standing eight yards behind the center. He's going to be there. Everybody on defense knows he's going to be there and they can pin their ears back and they can get after the quarterback. When you're running a lot of these wide zone play action pass offenses that you see today, it's much easier on the offensive line because you're running tons of play action where the defensive line actually thinks for the first second and a half of the play that it's a run. So they're running down the line of scrimmage. They're trying to maintain their gap. And all of a sudden now in the middle of it, the quarterback pulls the ball and they have to transition to pass rush. 
which is pretty difficult to do. And so it buys you a bunch of time on the front end. And when the ball's coming out in three seconds, you just got to be a speed bump for a second and a half when you're in those systems. And so I love playing in those systems, but when you're an offensive line, the quarterback has to be on the page with you, being in the right spot, delivering the football on time, reading the defense. Um, you have to be able to communicate where the mic point is, who you guys are sliding to, who you're responsible for, who the running back has. Like all those things have to happen on every single play, and you have to be on the same page. And then on top of that, you got to be technique sound and not just getting beat individually. So um, when you go into halftime, and it's getting sideways and things are not looking good and you're getting beat up like we saw the Bengals uh, earlier in the playoffs, especially. There's not a whole lot of hope in that situation because it's not something that can get fixed in the locker room at halftime. That's something that has to get fixed through the offseason, through training camp. And it's a collection of all the things I mentioned from philosophy to individual performance to is the guy just doing the things the right way? And so at halftime, you're really left with, hey, we either need to just start throwing some quicker passes or we need to start running the ball a little bit better because we can't just let the quarterback stand back there because there's nothing we can do that can change that. This is maybe one of the dumbest questions I'm ever going to ask anybody because we just <laughs> went over your resume. But I always laugh a little bit when the when the quarterback yells at the offensive lineman because it's like, you better have a standing with the team. You better have done some things <laughs> exactly. if you're going to yell at your offensive yeah. lineman yeah. who have the most boring job in the game. Like, yes. I mean, you may not think it's boring, but I mean, of yes. all the things you can do, right. Thankless. Uh, did anyone ever yell at you about a misprotection? Um, I'm trying to think back. I, I don't think they ever did. Uh, <laughs> you may not yelled, have had one, by the way. Like so. shotgun blast kind of, you know, one of those things where the quarterback was not happy because he was getting pummeled. And so he kind of did the, uh, the shotgun blast at all the offensive line, or maybe even the old grade school technique where uh, the quarterback would yell at the offensive coordinator about the offensive line and the protection that he was getting because he didn't want to point us out too personally because, like you mentioned, all of a sudden that subconscious starts kicking in and uh, the effort that you thought you were giving maybe was not as good as it used to be after this quarterback started calling you out on the carpet and acting like a jerk. Um. Oh, I got I to gotta remember who we had. We had one of the, I don't know, Saruti, if you can look this up while I'm talking about it, because he was such a funny guy. He used to play for Detroit, and we had him at ESPN. He would come by and do some stuff. Big mm -hmm. old offensive lineman. Yeah. Saruti, he played for the Lions. And then he kind of admitted to me in the interview that we got so pissed off at Scott Mitchell, we let him get blasted a couple times. <laughs> but then that. it became like a story. Yeah. So then right. we, we well, kind of yeah. felt bad because yeah. he was yeah. admitting. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see uh, admitting to fratricide out there <laughs> on your offense. Um, but certainly you have quarterbacks that you literally do anything for, right? The guys that are always taking care of you. They're never throwing you under the bus. They're always putting you in the best positions. Um, and I think of a guy like Joe Burrow, he does hold on to the football a little bit too long at times. And so some of those hits he's taking are maybe on him because he's trying to make a play. He's a playmaker. We saw it already in the playoffs, his ability to find a way to win the game by making the play down the stretch is amazing, especially for a guy who's not as athletic as a lot of these guys that we're seeing today, but you never hear him calling out his offensive line. So those guys, even though the performance may not show it, those guys would do anything for Joe Burrow. Whereas you get a quarterback who maybe he's always wanting to point his fingers at you and not accepting the blame when he should. Yeah. Then maybe you might accidentally point the mic, the wrong guy, or, you know, maybe you're going to turn a little bit faster than you should and let your guy go to the guard on a slide. And then the guards maybe not ready. And then all of a sudden he's creaming uh, your quarterback back there. And it's like, all right, that's what you deserve, buddy.
by the way, we were able to find it was Lomas Brown who was oh, on nice. with us. He said yeah. it turned into a big thing. And then yeah. Mitchell said that it was reprehensible. <laughs> Lomas <laughs> said, I, reg- I regret doing it. I love it. It was like beef 20 years after the fact. That's amazing. But I will say, if you ever want to know what an offensive lineman thinks of his quarterback or in that moment, if he feels like the quarterback screwed him by either being too deep or hanging onto the ball too much, see who helps him up. Because if I ever gave up a sack or I screwed up and I, I my guy hit the quarterback, I was the first guy right there to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Here, let me help you up. Get my hand. If it was his fault, I would walk over there. I just look at him and I was not helping him up. I'm like, you're going to get your own ass off the ground because you deserve everything you got. <laughs> hey, can we go to uh, Shanahan? What, what sure. were your impressions of him from the very beginning? You said yeah. you were thrilled. You liked, yeah. you liked oh. kind of the scheme and the, mm-hmm. and the blocking scheme and everything. Yeah. But give me your first kind of instincts of like why you think he's turned into who he's been. Yeah, well, I was really excited to play in that offense because when I was coming out as a rookie in 2007, actually, um, Mike Shanahan was in Denver at the time. And I was really hoping, because there were some rumors that they were going to trade up to draft me, I was hoping to go there because they had a history of smaller offensive linemen. And I was I, I was 310 pounds, but I was still considered kind of a smaller left tackle compared to the guys that were playing in that day and age. You know, it was Jonathan Ogden, who was... 6'9", 360. It was Willie Rofe, who was 350. It was these guys that were really huge. And so I was a little bit undersized. So I had to use athleticism. Um, and I loved the way they used smaller guys and they let them run and they won with technique and scheme. And they set up these huge chunk plays in the play action. And I'd never played in that system after not being drafted by Denver and going to Cleveland. Um, so I was on one hand, just excited to play in sort of the last remaining offensive system that I haven't played in at that point, because I'd been going through so many offensive coordinators and head coaches. Um, but also I had had friends that had played for him in Washington when Kyle was the offensive coordinator for his dad, Mike. And they talked about how much I would love this system, how friendly it is to offensive linemen, how you're able to be the aggressor because of their wide zone schemes that they run and how they don't put you in bad positions with a lot of drop back pass, how you get these chunk plays off of the play action. It makes it so hard on a defense because they're so busy running sideways to sideways. A lot of times they're not able to read their keys quite as quickly. So um, when Kyle came to Cleveland and we started learning the scheme, it was everything. It was advertised, but what, really impressed me about Kyle was the way he had this unbelievable emotional intelligence to be able to read his players and to, in a totally non-phony way at all, completely genuine to make you feel like you were going into that game and there was no way you were going to lose because you were going to have a game plan that was far superior to the other team. And he was going to pump you up individually and show you plays during the week, Thursdays, Friday, Saturday morning of you succeeding from the weeks before doing the things that he's going to ask you to do on Sunday. And he was the best of all time at pumping you up and building your confidence um, going into the game on Sunday. I know that, you know, those of us can kind of like just lump them all together and be like, all right, well, the Shanahan thing's the thing that started it and Kyle, but then McVeigh and Mm -hmm. they worked together and LaFleur and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell kind of the difference? Like I'm sure you can, um, but how would you say, conceptually you know philosophy how how different mcveigh is uh yeah. than, than say shanahan when you watch yeah so it's it's really interesting because what, what i love about kyle is this is the system that kind of his dad created by taking the west coast passing game with the outside zone running game um that really 
people had it in their playbook, but they weren't doing it the way he was doing it with running as fast as they possibly can, trying to reach, trying to actually make those outside zones go outside and allowing the cutback or the cut up to sort of happen naturally. They were one of the first teams that were really doing a lot of cut blocking on the backside to get guys to fall and creating these huge gashes um, on the interior of a defense. And it's fun to watch Kyle because as the person who's kind of created that offense, even though he's been a coordinator for a long time, he's constantly evolving it because it's his baby. Whereas when you get a coordinator that learned an offense from somebody else, and then they take that playbook somewhere else, that playbook gets stale after a while because they're not evolving the playbook the way the originator of the offense does. So a lot of times what you see is like, hey, if a Shanahan disciple or McVeigh disciple or an Andy Reid disciple leaves and goes somewhere else, it's pretty good in the year one. It's okay in year two, but they're not progressing at the same way that the offense naturally would have had they stayed with the creator of the offense. So it, I say that because with McVay, watching him and Kyle, they're actually, I'm sure, using a lot of the same terminology and the same concepts, but it's totally different offenses because with McVay, he never plays with a fullback. He doesn't even have one on the roster. He's playing with three wide receivers. It's much more of a passing-oriented offense. And they do run the football and they run the outside zones and stuff, but it's not the way that Kyle runs it. Whereas Kyle's focus is, I'm going to open up big gashes in the passing game by running the football and making people so afraid of what we're doing physically running the ball inside and outside that it opens up huge windows in the play-action passing. So he plays with a fullback. He gets his big left tackle offensive line in motion. He's coming up with all these creative concepts and focusing most of his game plan and most of his practice week on coming up with great running concepts that maybe look a little bit different to the defense that he feels like they have a schematic advantage. Whereas with McVay, it's much more passing oriented. It's much more of like the West Coast pass first type mentality. And It'll be interesting just to see, like with McVeigh, if he tries to tweak anything now that this is the second time around in the Super Bowl where he kind of got burned the first time. Because with this long two-week stretch, you have a lot of time to really focus in and come up with a very specific game plan to stop the team you're going to go against. Belichick famously did it last time the Rams were in the Super Bowl. And I'm curious what wrinkles McVeigh comes out with that he hasn't shown to try to stay one step ahead um, in that Super Bowl. McVeigh was really down on himself after that loss to New England. Yeah, and right. it's one of the few Super Bowls of all my friends, you know, that still cover the team or whatever. And I was like, what's the vibe around the team? Or like, I've never seen him this confident going into a Super Bowl because they were mm -hmm. like, they know exactly what LA is going to do. They're yep. pretty one dimensional. Goff's yep. not much of a threat. And oddly enough, the game still had a moment where it may have been in doubt, even though it felt like New England was the superior <laughs> team. I think that probably has haunted McVeigh for such no a doubt. long time that if he loses this one, it's not going to be by being as predictable. Exactly. As they were in that first mm -hmm. one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great point. That's um, what I was alluding to. Like, he's not going to make those same mistakes. He's very analytical. He's got this amazing Rain Man memory. And he's not going to go in and be unprepared. And that's why I think you're going to see a lot of different tweaks with this offense and a lot of new concepts that maybe look the same. So he's giving the defense the same read that they've practiced against for two weeks. But then he's going to try to take advantage of uh, some type of arbitrage or some type of leverage mistake that they can use with shifts and motions to be able to find big windows in the passing game. Because a lot of times it's those three or four explosive plays that make the difference, especially in those big games like the Super Bowl. And everybody remembers those moments. 
So a guy who's super intelligent and super analytical like Sean McVay, you better believe that he's been waiting for this moment to be able to come back, to be able to show some of that creativity that, hey, I'm not the same coach that lost the Super Bowl to Bill Belichick a few years ago. So back to kind of the Cincinnati. Now, if we dig into this matchup a little bit, which, you know, we're all going to be doing a lot more here over the next week and a half. But that old line. I mean, how do you see like what what are you doing in your preparation to try to figure out a way? Because you you don't have the advantage against this D line for L.A. It's gotten even Mm -hmm. better with all the depth around it. But Mm -hmm. there's there has to be. Hey, what's the best concept that gives us a chance? Yeah, I think schematically, the important thing for the offensive line, because the Rams have such a good defensive line all across the board, and obviously everybody knows about Von Miller and Aaron Donald, you've got to run at those guys, right? Von is incredibly slippery. He's an amazing pass rusher. He's very good against the run because of his slipperiness. But if you make him try to hold the point and you're running at him, you're putting big bodies on him, he's not a big guy, right? So he has he struggles a little bit holding up in those situations. And Aaron Donald, he doesn't have a hard time hunkering down and like taking on double teams on the front side, but you damn sure don't want him on the backside chasing down because he's so athletic and so fast. If you're trying to run away from him, he's going to make his, he's going to make his, the block miss. And then he's got the speed to close and make explosive negative plays in the backfield. And that's absolutely what you don't want to do. So I think for Cincinnati, the game plan is going to be, they're going to try to shift in motion, depending on where Aaron Donald and Von Miller are going to line up at the beginning. You can do a motion where you set the formation in one direction, you motion away. So you can either get the tight end to those guys or the tight end away, depending on how you want them to line up. And then you can get some favorable double teams on Aaron Donald on the inside, hopefully that he doesn't wreck things up. Um, And then you're able to get some of those cutbacks where you're running right at those guys, you're getting four eyes and four hands on Aaron Donald. And then you're able to kind of get to that softness of the defense, either behind them or kind of right to the outside where Von Miller is. Uh Vaughn, how, did he line up? Did they move him around? Did, or did, how many times was he lined up? Across? I mean, not total yes. number of snaps here, but yeah, right. I mean, clearly you guys went at it, right? Yeah, yeah, we did. And and it was different from year to year. And it, I think some of it depended on um, who they also had rushing. So like when DeMarcus Ware was there and we played him, like DeMarcus would play over the left tackle because that's where he played his whole career. Right. And Vaughn was over the right tackle. And I think playing in the AFC West, there were so many good rushers over the right tackle, including Von Miller, that they decided, hey, the right tackles are getting pretty good at the AFC West. Maybe let's work on trying both sides a little bit and trying to find um, where he's at his best. And in the end, they found out that just the unpredictability of where he was going to line up was the most important thing. And they found he was just as good rushing over the right tackle as he was the left tackle. So we had we had some good battles, um, but not every single time we faced him. I, I talk about Von Miller too much. <laughs> um, because at, at his peak, I just have never, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody have the balance that yeah, he has right. that position. I'm mm-hmm. not saying he's the best, you know, he's not saying he's Lawrence Taylor here, but yeah. the number of times I think, oh, he's just going to get pushed to the ground. Like he would be yeah. at 45 degrees to the ground yep. and mm-hmm. he would get under your arms Yep, and he still would be able to hold. So it's not like you're pushing him past the quarterback. Like, right. fine, you want to speed rush me outside? I'm just going to mm-hmm. push you all the way behind the drop. Yeah. So congrats. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you ever have a moment you were like, what the fuck with this guy? Or were you, <laughs> I, you know, because I can't remember all everything here. Yeah. Where I, or did you kind of eat him up a little bit because you get your hands on him and you had the side? I don't know. So I always felt like I had a really good game plan against him because if you obviously watch a lot of Von Miller, you know that, Big guys, big, strong, tall guys struggle mightily against him, right? Because he's he's so quick. 
and he's so fast off the ball. Like his get off on the snap is one of the best in the NFL, probably of all time, especially for an edge rusher. Um, and so he gets ahead of you, especially if you're not quick out of your stance and then you're trying to catch up. So your balance is going backwards on your heels. You're trying to get back in phase is what like a term you would use where I'm trying to get back ahead of him where I can get my feet in the ground and I can get my hands on him. And then that's where he was at his best, right? Where he was ahead of you. He was rushing up the field and he could either duck under you if you weren't athletic and, uh, bendy enough where you could get down low at full speed and be able to put your hands on him. Or if he saw and he felt like you were going to be able to get your hands on him and you were going quickly, but you were off balance upfield. That's when he had that devastating spin move where he would just spin like a top, come back inside. And the quarterback was always stepping up right into where he was coming off of that spin move. So for me, as a more athletic, smaller guy, he wasn't strong enough to bull rush me as long as I was in balance. And so I knew that I could win every rep against him as long as he didn't beat me off the snap. So I would go into those games and I was telling that quarterback, like, do not vary your cadence tempo at all with your voice, because I'm going to be going a split second before you say go so that I'm actually moving at the same time that the ball starts to move. So in my head, I'm actually false starting. But the time that it took my brain to tell my body to start moving was just that little bit of a split second where it kept me on time. And I felt like as long as I was ahead of Vaughn, he was never going to beat me because I was going to keep my shoulders square. I was going to be in front of him and I was going to play basketball with him. Right. I was going to let him tr try to invite the bull rush and then put my hands on him. But if he got ahead of you, it was over. And you saw that in the Super Bowl um, when they won that Super Bowl and he terrorized. Uh, I think it was Mike Remmers, the right tackle. And once he gets in your head like that, it's over because you're thinking, man, he's just going to run around me. And then as soon as you think that, whoop, you fall out the window and he spins back inside and gets a sack to the inside. And then you're like, now what do I do? You just beat me upfield. He beat me inside. I, I got nothing on this guy. Okay. So Aaron Donald, I th you think you got him once, right? In 2015. Yeah, right at the beginning of his career, it was yeah. when they were in St. Louis. And uh, I remember Joel Batonio was our left guard. I think he, it was his rookie season. He's gone on to have an amazing Hall of Fame career. He, he was all pro this year. Um, but he was my left guard. And I remember him talking about Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald, because I think they maybe were rookies together. And I'm like, this dude's a rookie. He's 280 pounds, a D tackle. I'm not afraid of this guy. Like, I'm not losing one bit of sleep going into this game. Um, obviously you watch him on film, but he's playing over the guard. So you don't see it all that much. I'm more focused on Robert Quinn, who at the time was a really good pass rusher that I was playing against. So we go into that game and we were running uh power, which is like America's play, right away. The, the backside guard pulls, you got a fullback that leads through and the fullback, the backside guard have two of the linebackers. Um, the defense, uh, the, the offensive line gets a double team at the point of attack. And then um, on the backside, the center and the tackle work together where I step down and I'll help on the defensive tackle at the time, Aaron Donald, until the center can snap the ball and then work back. And he takes over my block on Aaron Donald, the defensive tackle. And then I do a hinge, which kind of just means I open my shoulders to the defensive end and then just wall them off because we're on the backside of the play. So it's not a big deal, but that's like super routine. I've been doing that since I was a freshman in college. I was 18 at Wisconsin and Madison. Um, never been beat on that in my entire life. It's impossible. You can't, you can't slip between me and the center. And the center was Alex Mack, who was also an all pro and Aaron Donald literally like when the ball was snapped, he got in Joel's like hip pocket. And it was like a Houdini move where both Alex and I crashed down to try to pin him. And he got underneath us and in between us and ran into the backfield and tackled the running back almost at the same time he was getting handed the ball. And that was the moment where I was like, oh my God, 
this guy is not human. He is built from another planet because he just beat an all pro center and an all pro left tackle on a double team on the most routine, easy block in the world. And at that point, I knew this dude was going to be a bad motherfucker. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he definitely is that now. I mean, he he almost, I thought he was going to try to kill that guy from Green Bay this year. <laughs> um, and, and apparently... It was, it was not, what did he have that nastiness then when he was playing with you guys? Was he talking at all? Cause I know when he, it always feels like with Donald, once you mess with him, then it's on. I don't think he yeah, starts man. the game at 10 with you So He's, from an effort level. He does, but talking oh, shit, yeah. he doesn't. Right. No, no, no. We always say you never want to tug on Superman's cape. And that was the truest thing you could say about Aaron Donald because he was always given great effort, right? But there was an extra level of hatred that he would bring out if you did something to him that he didn't like. So you were very careful not to block him longer than the whistle. You were very careful not to cut him too far on the side where he would get a little upset and feel like that was a dirty play because the last thing he wanted to do was give Aaron Donald a little extra motivation to try to kill you because if you do, you will die. Like there is nobody on the face of the earth that Aaron Donald could not kick their ass, especially in between the tackle boxes. Yeah, man. Um, you were not the first to say it. All right. As an AFC North alum, um, the overall Cincinnati view of, of, of what this team, I mean, we talked about the O-line here a little bit. We know it's Burrow and Chase and, and Zach Taylor, you know, turning this mm -hmm. thing around, obviously with Burrow yeah. being a big reason. But, you know, it's still, it's odd. It's a 10-7 and 7 team that everybody kind of loves now. Yeah. We know they have their problems, but how do you see yeah. it as a team you probably played a little more attention to? Yeah. Yeah, I'm like a, a closet um, Cincinnati Bengals bandwagon fan. And I think you're right. Like they've got the underdog story that everybody loves. Everybody's just so attached to Joe Cool Burrow and the way he's playing, the way he's got the ice water in his veins at the end of games. And he's just finding ways to win. Um, but then also his, his mentality, his leadership. I think he's just one of those natural leaders where people are drawn to him. People like him. People want to play for him. Um, and at this point, when you get these teams into the Super Bowl that are both hot, that both have great quarterback play, um, it's anybody's game. I mean, I, you can always throw the spread out, in my opinion, um, because it's just going to come down to those three or four plays. And typically it's made by quarterbacks. Right. And when you have Joe Burrow, like you're, you're feeling pretty good about being able to make those plays down the stretch, especially for him coming off of an enormous confidence boosting game against Patrick Mahomes, who people were already ready to give the Super Bowl trophy to after they beat the Bills. And to have that huge deficit in the beginning of the game come all the way back and beat him, like for Joe Burrow, as if his confidence couldn't have been any higher and his team couldn't have believed in him anymore to kind of do that just adds to the fairy tale and adds to their feeling of invincibility. I want to ask you about a few other things, too, and I, there's always the, the mandatory Baker question probably at the end at some point here. Um, but this Brian Flores story is huge. The lawsuit oh. now against the NFL, the text mm -hmm. message from Bill Belichick. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of start this way. We know it's a, a huge problem. Yep. Like when I look at what the NBA has done with the progress that they've made with head coaching hires and then see where the NFL's at, like anybody that's denying that this is an issue, just, you know, your head's in the sand. Okay. But how did you talk about this with teammates? How did you talk about it with coordinators, black coordinators? You know, what was the understanding like of living in the world and, and trying to understand how this hasn't gotten better? Mm -hmm. Obviously being a, a white male from suburban Wisconsin, like I don't have the same experiences that Brian Flores or any of the black coaches do. 
And so when situations like this would come up when I was playing or now that I'm in the media world and just listening to this story unfold, the first thing I always try to do is, is put myself in their shoes to try to gain empathy for their situation because I think that empathy uh, can build an understanding. And for me, I heard the Brian Flores stuff this morning and my wife and I, we started talking about it. And I like started crying because I'm thinking about the situation that he was in. First of all, it was total bullshit that he got fired in Miami. He did a masterful job. And by all accounts, the reason that he got fired was because Tua Tungavailoa was their quarterback instead of Justin Herbert. And last I checked, they had a GM who was responsible for that role. And so to hire a defensive-minded head coach to be like sort of that CEO, and then to fire him after it seems like everybody on that team believed in him and he was making all the right decisions. He was as classy as they came. They finished with an incredibly hot, winning streak, finding a way to win with a quarterback that maybe didn't have the upper ceiling that a lot of these guys in the NFL have. And then to get fired, I mean, it's already a BS situation. And then you hear as he's thinking to his family, like, hey, guys, I'm going to get a second chance. I know it was bullshit in Miami, but I've got these other interviews and hopefully we can catch on to a spot that potentially is maybe even a better fit. And obviously the stuff with Steven Ross paying him to lose potentially, that's a whole nother story that's crazy. But it had to, had to have the feeling in his mind that Miami was maybe toxic and this is an opportunity for a fresh start, right? I think when he was fired, everybody was thinking that maybe he was the top candidate for all of the head coaching jobs because everyone kind of universally thought that he got screwed in Miami and he did a really good job. And then to find out from your mentor Bill Belichick, that the interview that you're about to go to is just a total bullshit sham because of the color of your skin has to be one of the most disgusting feelings that a human being could ever feel. And it was so sad for me to think about what was probably going through his mind in that situation when he got that text message from Bill and how he would share that with his family. Like, to me, if you're one of the NFL owners, which clearly the problem is within the people that are controlling the NFL franchises, because those are the guys that are not willing to hire people that maybe don't sound like them, don't look like them, don't come from the same background as them, that they feel like they maybe can't go to dinner and, and have a beer and be completely honest with. And that's why they're hiring people that they're playing identity type politics where they want to hire people that are like them. And that limitation without the owners making a conscious effort to, to change. It doesn't matter how many Rooney rules you have or how many minority coaching internships you have, nothing is going to change. And for the NFL, I hope that this Brian Flores situation, and I hope the lawsuit is the big wake up call that the owners needed. Hugh Jackson uh, talked about the tanking part of this, um, where Brian Flores also in the lawsuit says, hey, they wanted me, they were giving me, offering up a bonus to lose more games and prove our draft position. Uh, you played for Hugh. You played for seven coaches at Cleveland. Yeah. Do, do you have any more insight on this? So I don't know anything like that that happened in Cleveland. Um, certainly they were ripping things down to the studs when he was the coach. And I think talking with Hugh after the fact, I don't know what the, true story was, but his side of it is that they didn't really let me know the situation that I was getting into, right? He was kind of saying, Hey, I thought I was going to take over. They were going to put all their resources in the first year, kind of like every franchise that had done for a very long time. We were going to try to 
retain as many of our good players as we had. And then we were going to kind of try to build from there. And the approach was different. It was um, something that you're seeing more teams, especially with an analytics background, are accepting, hey, if we can't make it to the playoffs, let's save our resources this year to try to improve our draft status, have more salary cap space so that we can find the quarterback we need. Because if you don't have a great quarterback, you can't win in the NFL period. So that's one of the big issues. But also, hey, then when we do get that quarterback two, three, four years down the line, we can put all those resources that we saved in to the team then, and then we can have a, a great run with a great quarterback. And it seemed like Hugh felt miffed that he wasn't given full understanding of that was the plan. However, I do know that we lost a lot of games. We only won one game in the two years that I was there. We were one in 15 and 0 in 16, but I gave Hugh a lot of credit because we busted our ass. Like, almost more than any other team that I've been around from a coaching standpoint, from a practice standpoint, from a player standpoint, like to be sitting at no wins at week 13 or 14 and still have your head coach come in and give you a positive spin that week and send a positive message and deliver a game plan that gets you believing that you can win on that Sunday. That might be harder than when you're going and you're on an eight or nine game win streak and your coach is coming in and giving you a good game plan and keeping you focused because it's so hard to keep guys buying and believing in and working hard when you're just getting your ass kicked every week. So I definitely don't think there was any tanking from a, hey, coaching standpoint, or certainly not a playing standpoint, because these guys were all playing for our jobs. But definitely the front office decides who the players are and when you're going to be using the resources that you have because of the salary cap, because of draft capital. And if it's not in the season that you're in, like had typically historically been the route people have taken, it does feel a little shitty as a player sometimes because you feel like we're handicapped going into this game. Whereas we're going against the LA Rams and they're all in. They just traded everything they got for Matt Stafford and Von Miller. And meanwhile, all we've done is trade away our draft picks for the future. We've traded away our good players. Um, and so there, there is a, a feeling of helplessness at times. But the fact that potentially Brian Flores was maybe going to get paid to lose, I mean, I don't even know where you take that. I mean, it seems like I, I want to hear more details before I say too much, but that is one of the most incredible claims I've ever heard related to the NFL in my entire life. Yeah, I mean, his tweet was basically like Jimmy Haslam, quote, was happy while we kept losing and then wrote, trust me, it was a good number. Um who said apparently he was replying to somebody saying it wasn't going to be a hundred grand. It's mm. just weird. I can't imagine That's the weird. coach would tell yeah. everybody. I'm not saying he's wrong. It's just, yeah. it's a crazy admission. Right. Um, and then no I doubt. think back to your last two years, you made a really good point. I mean, not that those of us that love this game can't understand, but I don't know what it's like to go. I can't imagine what was it? One in 31 over your last yeah. two years. It was, it was horrible. I mean, honestly, Hugh going into that and then Hugh on the other side, and me as well. Like I had to talk with our team psychologist because losing in the NFL is so much more painful than any other sport. And I think that may have been the big thing that the Browns front office underestimated when they kind of went with that um, approach, the, the tear it down to the studs and we're going to save for the future. Um, because if you do that in basketball or baseball, which it, it kind of been, it, it's, it's done more frequently. And I'm, I'm not the fan of those sports that you are, but it's a, it's a strategy that's been around. And if you lose in basketball, people stop showing up. If you lose in baseball, people just don't pay attention. If you lose in football, they're still there, but they're just mad as hell. Like in Cleveland, 
they had an Owen 16 parade basically saying that you guys are embarrassing us, but it's that important to them that they're willing to show up in the middle of winter at an Owen 16 parade versus just turning the TV off. Like this is people's life in the NFL. And when you're the team that can't get it right, the, the emotional toll that it takes on you and how it changes you as a person is really tough. I mean, we lost to the Patriots the year we went Owen 16 or Owen 15 or Owen 16, one in 15 or Owen 16. Can't remember exactly which year that was now, thankfully. Um, but I'd convinced myself because he was really good at convincing you that you were going to win this game. This is a great game plan. You guys have what it, what it takes. A lot like I mentioned with Kyle Shanahan was, and we go into that game, we got absolutely smashed by the Patriots. And Tom, I think we lost like 33 to six. And I remember getting in the car with my wife after the game. And I just started crying. I was like looking out the window and she's like, are you okay? You know, she was always real careful after games because, you know, we can be a little emotional, especially if I didn't play well or I was mad at something. And so she was always a little careful not to uh, poke the bear. And I was like, I'm okay. I feel like I'm all right. And she just said, you know, what's wrong? Did, did you not play a good game? And I was like, no, I actually had a perfect game. But I like the fact that I had no control over the outcome and that we were still getting our asses kicked, it got to me on a level that it really hurt. It stung and it emotionally fucked me up really bad where I I had to go talk to the psychologist for a little while and kind of help me cope with those things. And I think Hugh is still trying to figure out how to cope with the fact that he feels he's a really good coach and he had one of the worst records of all time through his tenure in Cleveland. And he feels like it's not my fault. You know, they didn't give me a chance. Is it okay if I pry into what that meant to to have it fuck you up towards the end? Like yeah. just how it was kind of impacting your day-to-day, man? Yeah, it definitely was because it's hard to describe the pain of losing. Like people in the NFL, they talk about it, but it really is what you've given your life for NFL football. And that's all pro athletes, but especially in football during the season because you only get one shot a week and you only get 16, you know, when I was playing. And the loss... And or the win in the NFL, especially, is always overblown in both directions. When you lose, you're worse than ever you really are. Everybody thinks you're terrible. They got to fire everybody. We got to start over. And it's that feeling that's in your stomach and your gut that just hurts like you're sick all the time. And to never get any taste of winning through a long stretch, it almost gives this feeling of what I'm doing is worthless, like the lack of control. And I think. I'll maybe compare that a little bit to during the pandemic when people like mental illness was getting crazy. And I'm sure it's still way above where it normally was, but the feeling of not having control over your situation and what's happening, especially when things are going poorly, um, is a really difficult mental mindset to be in, especially when you have to go back to work and you have to give your best effort the very next day. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is nobody ever feels bad for you guys because of the money, the fame. Absolutely. You get to do, you know, very few people get to live out their dream. But then once you're in it, yeah. you know, once you're in it, you're going, okay, I deserve all of those things. No doubt. But now I I don't process it the way you process it because mm-hmm. this is my day to day. And I mean, yeah. that had to have been because I know the last season was the half season um, yeah. with the injury. Mm-hmm. But yeah. did you ever think of like, Hey, maybe, I mean, it doesn't really happen in the NFL the way it happens in the NBA, but were there ever real conversations about like, I'd love to just get a taste of chasing something Mm -hmm. once. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there's part of you that says that, but at the same time, in order to get the most out of yourself, you have to convince yourself that the situation you're in has hope in being that, right? And how special that would be, right? You have to control your brain so much as an NFL player. And it's the biggest cliche ever about controlling your emotion. And you hear the Patriots talk about it and it's so boring, but it's absolutely true. And it's the key to being able to be prepared at every single Sunday uh, to the best of your ability. It's controlling the things that you control, not worrying about the things you don't control and convincing yourself that if I prepare as well as I possibly can and practice as well as I possibly can, success will happen and it will come because you want to couple those two things in your brain and you never want those things to decouple because that's when you get that hopeless feeling. Now I feel like a Baker question is relevant. <laughs> we can go Baker. We'll, we'll have to have a commercial let's, break right there. <laughs> let's, let's, let's finish on this because I don't, um, I don't know what to do anymore. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I, I have an open mind about things. I also feel like there were a few weeks here at the end where that guy was in some serious pain running yeah. around. So I yeah. want to be fair to that part of it. But yeah. I also mm -hmm. look at four years of, of it not being what people would hope in Cleveland. They've got yeah. him for one more year in a contract, yeah. which doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. But where yeah. are you now with kind of this, this pivot for him where we don't know where it's going? Yeah, I hope he gets one more opportunity with a healthy shoulder because obviously – you know, he tears his labrum early on in the season and he just never looked right the whole year. I mean, um, and we'd seen flashes of really good play from Baker, including the year before where he finished the season really well. And I think the question with Baker being that he isn't physically talented the way Patrick Mahomes is or Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson or some of these elite quarterbacks in the NFL in this younger age class he doesn't have that arm that those guys have. He doesn't have the wheels that those guys have. He doesn't have the stature that those guys have. So for him to have great success and be the quarterback the Browns want from him, he needs to be a little bit like a Drew Brees, where he was very, very accurate and very, very consistent, and he was able to read the defense and never be confused. He always knew where the football needed to go. And we haven't seen that yet from Baker. So I really want to see what he can do because this will be his third year in this offense, it'll be hopefully completely healthy. And if he can show that level of consistency that he needs to, I think he can get a long-term contract from the Browns and they can definitely um, build a, a, a roster around him that can compete for a Super Bowl. But if he's showing any level of inconsistency, you've got to say, because the ceiling isn't super high, that he's not the type of guy that you can trust enough to build a franchise around and they'll probably go um look for somebody else tremendous work man this was a lot of fun and i, I appreciate you opening up on, on top of everything else and, and the flora stuff was incredible too so uh we'll see you on nfl network through the lead up man enjoy the super bowl i appreciate it thanks for having me on this episode is brought to you by arby's you know what i hate hate is after lunch there's all this time before dinner I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra. An appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack. Or as an add-on to your meal. Food Buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice is about to start. Before we do that, we get to check in with everybody's new fitness guru <laughs> with an incredible filter today. All right, Kyle, we left We left you Monday. We had back injuries. The sneezing was like, it was tough for me to watch you sneeze. I was in pain watching you sneeze. Uh, you're supposed to work out with the Nigerian guy. It has been 48 hours. So uh, I'm actually doing this standing up. I got a standing desk. Uh, it's been real bad. Nice. Been doing a lot of laying on the floor and not because I've been having too much fun, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> ew, I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've learned how to sneeze from some guy on Instagram who told me to, honestly, you should see me sneeze now. It's hilarious. I have to lean back and keep my mouth open and look at the ceiling when I sneeze. Um, so that's, that's part of the reason I got this filter, just in case I have to do it. So it won't look so crazy. But um, no, I, I didn't go. I was I wrote the pod description lying on the floor yesterday. Um, I just it was real bad. I got a doctor's appointment on Friday. It's it's a little better today. I'm just trying not to sit at all. So there'll be no banner lords today. That's been the hardest. So part wait, about all this. So, so you you didn't work out? No, dude, no. No, because I, you know, because I was seated for the, that that whole time while I was giving the thing. And I was like, all right, this hurts pretty bad while I'm seated. And then when I got up to smoke my cigarette while the Zoom call transfer, uh, you know, transcribes the video or whatever, converts it. I was like, oh, holy shit. And it just got just got worse and worse as I was making my way to my little balcony. And I don't know, it just seemed it seemed crazy to me to to go. And it was just it was real. it was it was probably as bad as it's been. I woke up feeling a little better today, but I realized um, after, after I sit down for a while, it's, it's getting crazy. So I called Tate cause he's got notorious back problems yesterday. Turns out he's got other shit that's not the same. He's got like a high rib cage or something. I don't know, but, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not what's going on with me. I got a thing on Friday. Maybe I'll get some opiates or just some, some muscle relaxers. Who knows how we're going to get through this, but, um, I'm just going to try to, I'm standing right now. And what can you do? So does, does your guy think he's, you're ducking him though? Like did he did he call you out and be like, hey man, you made like three or four excuses every time we've had to work out? Like, I'm gonna show up today um and just see what's going on with him. Um I don't know. I don't think he'll he's, see I, you're like, in rushing. I think the other thing is he's like he's not really worried because he's the he's the door guy at Frolic Room. When he sees me, he's gonna be like, All right, I'm gonna leave work now. That's basically his new plan. So if he doesn't see me, he'll just work and make his money. Like it's really like it's all it's all very convenient for him how this has worked out. So mm. Wow. Wow. Okay. I think that's the update we were all looking for. Yeah, sorry, guys. It'll happen, oh, though. Hey, don't be. Just, I want you to go buy supplements, though, as a motivating factor. I'll Venmo you 100 bucks. Like vitamin C drops? Go. No? That's good. That's smart. It's not a supplement. It tastes great. It says it supplement drops. Too. Yeah, it tastes great. No, but I want you to kind of like do the supplement buy, and then they're there. So now you're like, all right, now I have to. You know, a little pre-workout, 
cup, you know, protein in the morning or something. So now you feel like, sounds bad, dude. It doesn't sound good. That's like when I bought all my, my script writing books as I was finishing up college and I was like, all right, look out LA. My stepdad had no explode lying around when I was in high school. That was, is it N-O explode or no explode? It was Knox, right? But yeah, it was no explode. N-O explode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, that, your that, stepdad it, it, was a pretty, your stepdad was a big pre-workout guy. Yonkers fire. He says he could bench 500 at some point. Um, yeah, he was a, he was a real, he was like a bear of a man. So I don't know. I was like, I guess this is for me too, huh? And I was just like, why the fuck am I continuing to take this? But I don't know. Okay. All right. Don't love Let's the idea the of life pre-workout. Advice. All right. Well, anti-pre-workout pro a few other things. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. This one's a bit, uh, he wants us to use his fake name. Is Cray? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, professional you can always refuse pro- their phrase, their fake name. You could give your own fake name. Right. Okay. 25 he said he's a professional poker p- player. Uh, for the last four months or so, I was seeing an older woman about double my age, attractive, outgoing, met her playing poker. She's probably the only person I know that was, uh, this one gets a little, uh, a little graphic okay. for this. So I try to edit. I've, I'm just still not 100% sure where I am with the all in. I'm talking about other guys having sex because I just I don't know if I want to do that kind of podcast. A little weird. I wouldn't. No, I'm not letting some prude about it, but I just I don't know. Maybe it's the Disney in me. Maybe it's the ESPN. I mean, clearly I don't mind swearing and going a little more PG-13, but I just feel like the podcast is like, hey, do you hear Rosillo's breakdown of Phoenix's clutch numbers? You'd be like, yeah, but what about that hand job story he told? You know, so I don't I don't really want to be that guy on the far end of it, but you guys write in whatever you want and I'll self-edit on the fly, which is why sometimes it sounds like I can't read. All right. So this woman was, let's say good to go, uh, got it. as often as he wanted to get down. And he said every single day, eventually it got too serious for me. I don't love her. So I broke things off. All right. So they had sex a ton. Congrats. Yeah. A- anyway, the point of this email is my massage addiction. I had a person I could have sex with every single day, multiple times a day, but I wasn't as happy as when I am when I get my massages. I go for the massages because of my back from playing poker all day. Kyle, we should hook you guys up. Um, yeah, what's your zip code, dude? Right. <laughs> Obviously, there's a little bonus going to these places, and I can't stop. I go every single day. How do I stop this? Clearly, getting a girlfriend isn't the answer. What do I do? Keep spending $100. He's spending a couple hundred dollars on these massages every day i'm dead wow. serious uh, and he, he said this is not a joke i don't know we never we're never 100 sure that's a red flag these. if i've ever seen one <laughs> it's not a joke i swear well we read it so whatever yeah. how, how, how would we handle this uh i have a friend i think we all have one guy in our group that you're like yeah all right that's kind of your speed that's what you do i have a friend who blew out his knee and then fa- tried to find somebody that was in his HMO to get rehab and his insurance ended up paying for him to go to uh, an adult massage parlor for like a year. They paid for every single one of them. Like once he was over his uh, deductible. And then he, they found out after a year or what? No, no, they didn't yeah. know. They didn't know. So guys were like, why are you going there all the time? Like you're not even that much of an athlete. <laughs> Don't worry about it, dude. And he was like, you guys, I, I got to get this right. I got to get this right. <laughs> really dedicated. And then the place, got, the place got raided. And he was like, boys, it was a good run. My and God. I was like, wow, my God. God. Okay. You're like, all right. 
this is a long, long time ago, long time ago. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, obviously if I, this were my speed, I wouldn't admit it, but it isn't. So I don't, I don't really, I would tell, I would say this at some point, you're going to have to stop doing this. I don't know how you, but you can't have a normal relationship with any woman. If this is what you're also doing. Okay. Like if, if, if all the reasons why I've heard of people getting divorced, I remember I heard some story about a couple where the woman married the guy and then it didn't work out. And they were like, they're separated, but they're trying to work it out. And I was like, what's the problem? She's like, he's addicted to hookers, just addicted. He like, she leaves for work. He calls one up. I'm like, middle of the day. Like this guy's a psychopath. So I don't know. It, it's an addiction in a way that's different. Like if you were drinking all the time, you were waking up and you were, your life isn't going to be normal, right? You're not going to be operating under the confines of how other people are doing their day to day. And you can't make any big boy decisions until that part is figured out and you make a change. Um, it's not the same because it's not like you look like shit, probably walking around feeling great. Um, but it's, it's the same in that it's consuming your life and that the rest of the decisions are all impacted by this in ways that maybe you're not even processing, but you will not be able to talk to somebody normally. I don't know that you'll be able to, to care for somebody normally. If that's what your goal is to get back to this, it sounds like you're just kind of pissed off about being out a couple hundred bucks every day. But if your goal is to actually be like a normal guy, which again, this isn't super normal. Sorry for the massage parlor enthusiasts out there listening to the podcast. I'm sorry if you feel like I'm being critical, but I just, I don't know. You can have this in your life every single day and make make like the normal parts work. So, uh, good luck. Yeah, I think too much of anything is a bad thing, as you said. Um, I'd say this is squarely in, in that uh, category. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like it's costing you a ton of money. And uh, what if you like knocked it down to? like whenever you get your toenails clipped or something like, you know, that's what I do. I, I don't get manicures. I get pedicures. And then I, th I throw on a little 10 minute leg massage on there. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's what you could do and find a, find a place that's close to your favorite spot and just try to knock it down to once a month as like a, as, as a thing. Wean, you wean you off like a little methadone version of this. Yeah. Just, just like <laughs> make it, make it, try to make it as part of like another, another sort of thing that you're doing for yourself cosmetically. Like that's what I'm saying. I, I just don't like cutting my toenails. Not a big fan. Um, you know, so Wait, I, what? I mean, I do, I, I do cut my own toenails sometimes. Like sometimes I shape up myself, but I'd rather go to a barber to do it. So I'm just saying like, if you maybe, I mean, if you're, if, if you're, if, I don't know. I just say try to try to like roll it into something else that you do on like a quarterly basis or monthly basis at best. And then um, just and just to show you, you'll be OK. Just to <laughs> show you, you will be OK. Yeah. Get an Excel sheet going. Be like, all right. Um, yeah, cold turkey is going to be pretty hard to, to stop. No pun intended. It's going to be pretty hard to stop dude, doing that. But are, I will say are. I have a buddy who kind of dabbles in this stuff. And my friend group talks about he's single. He's also a guy who lost 20 grand on a bachelor party went to in Vegas. Um, so he just kind of is involved in this sort of behavior and he's single. And we always talk about like, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, is he this way because he isn't in a relationship or is he not in a relationship because he does all of this stuff? And I actually think it's because I actually think he does it because he's not in a relationship and he kind of feels bad for himself. So I, I think you got to try to find somebody, a, even if it's just a consistent hookup thing to get that out of your system, because otherwise it's too easy for you to go there and pay every time you go. Right. So I think you need to find some companionship, man. That would be my, that would be my advice.
I was going to suggest maybe a sex toy, but it sounds like he just needs two people involved in this thing. So, yeah, um, we're good. We're good now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Kyle. I don't want you to be frustrated. Your, your facial expression, which I can't quite figure out with today's filter. I don't want to feel like your input was was put off, but I I don't I don't know what I No, it was just my we're first good. Thought. I think I, I think we covered. I think Saruti yeah. did nail something, though, on the chicken or the egg thing. But I, I kind of revert back to I think we end up making decisions that we all want to make. Like deep down, even though we may not have the things that we want to, we make the decisions that put us in that position. And you're like, oh, OK, like you just like this, dude. You'd like doing this. And so maybe you're not motivated to change because the other thing you think you want, you don't really actually want. And so this is some it fills the void a little bit, but you're not willing to make any other changes to actually get out of this because this is what you want to do right now. And I don't know how long that's going to last. All right. Shout out to cigarettes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have the best writers. Oh, I don't I don't know. You need, to, you need to be on doing something with like some late night TV shows. I was watching some of those. I think you should leave sketches last God, night. So good. Have you watched the Haunted House one? It's Tim Robinson, right? I've seen them all. Yeah, I think, I've seen them all. Yeah. My dad loves them too. The Haunted House one is so fucking funny. And I didn't know. I had never seen it before. Like, I'm not a huge, obviously, I just check myself get for, for potentially forgetting his name. But I've seen some of the clips. And obviously, I've seen all the memes. He's a huge meme guy. Yeah. Um, but that Haunted House thing where he just starts swearing saying dirty words <laughs> because they said it's the adult door and you can say whatever you want yes it's it, I, I, I the first time he says a word i i was howling because again i didn't expect it and the timing and the way they did it all was terrific so there you go i think it's you some should of the, leave it's some of the best times i have with my dad and i went home uh august and like you know we kind of like the same stuff but he's always watching stuff with uh with his wife and it's just like this is my life now i watch house shows and what can i do she doesn't like <laughs> stuff with swords so i don't watch it and so it was like these things are so short and we were just laughing so hard and uh it was it was so good the nachos <laughs> can you just tell her the rule of the nachos and the, well, i don't know if you've seen it but it's just i haven't anybody, seen that one I, anybody who, I, who is is pressed for watching stuff with your dad He's going to be in immediately, whoever your dad is. And it's just great bonding time. That's all I'll say. <laughs> when, the, one, when the one with Will Forte is, like, I don't think it's the best skit, but like the guy on the plane who like gets yeah. back at the baby. That That is so genius to me. Like, I'm not saying it's, the, it's my favorite one, but just the idea of that is so stupid funny that it's it's I'm honestly like the perfect skit. Where he dresses up like the guy and goes to the mall and it's like, they're making fun of i think they're I making don't fun be of here anymore <laughs> no. we, we, we my dad and i have that catchphrase he's just like oh, i don't want to be around anymore that's just what he says to me <laughs> I, I love that one are you kidding no, the, 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 the best one the face off the one what about the one where he's in the courtroom right and they just keep making fun of his hat and like the 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 lawyer keeps reading about like this guy in his stupid hat and he's like what the fu like what the fuck is going on and that to me is the best one yeah, because that's kind of what it is. It's just, all right, we're going to put you in a normal setting, but there's going to be this one thing that you can't get over, you're obsessing over. And again, there's there's some different stuff in there too. But when he's at the haunted house, I haven't seen enough of him. I need to go back. We should try to get him on. I don't know. Does he do a lot of stuff? I thought I saw an interview where they said SNL passed on him, which I could kind of see because his comedy. Well, he, is, was, he was on SNL, but he was a writer on SNL. 
Oh, he's a writer. Oh, yeah. I thought somebody and I think, said he tried out and it didn't to be. No, a I think I could be wrong, but I think I think he was on one of the late night shows like Kimmel or or uh, or Fallon or somebody. And he was talking about like how they didn't use his skits. They didn't like using the skits. And like he was that's, like, oh, that's what it was. And they're like, that's interesting because your skits are kind of better than SNL skits now. Um, but the weird, time but yeah. it, it takes though, the kind of skits like you have to let them play out. You know, when he's in the haunted house, and it just starts with like, yeah, you can say whatever you want for you. Know, we're kind of killing this for anybody who hasn't watched. So we'll finish here for a second. But he's he's in the haunted house tour. There's a tour guide who's like a goth dude who's super into the haunted house and the history of all the people who have died in this house. It's just a bunch of other tourists, you know, randos everywhere. And they're like, you can say whatever you want. And then it just every time he raises his hand, he's like, Did any of these fuckers ever? Because <laughs> he's so thrilled. He's so pumped to be swearing. <laughs> they have to pull them aside. Anyway, there you go. Go ahead. Check that out. There you go. Full endorsement. All right. Last one here. Uh, late request for reimbursement. Dun, dun, dun. 28, 6'4", bald beard. What up? Nice. Nice. Good look. Nice. nice Underrated dude. look. Nice, dude. Wish we all could be 6'4", man. Imagine we were all 6'4", just walking around. Would we all get along? Would more. you rather be? Would you rather be six six? Well, I know your answer, Ryan. Would you rather be six six or five seven? Dude, don't even. You're banned from the pod That's for crazy. one week. All right, because I think That's six crazy. six. Like Van Pelt always said, six six was like abnormally tall. No, he's six seven. He says six six because he thinks six seven is weirdo town. But he's six right. seven. I, I kind of get it. Like, there's a point where you reach if you're not an athlete where you're too tall and it's like kind of weird. Like, I'm not saying it's Van Pelt that that way, but I think there is a lot. What's the cutoff line? I don't know. I just don't hear a lot of women ever saying, I'd like to meet somebody just under average height. I don't, I don't hear that a lot. <laughs> All right. What, what if I, what if I made it five ten? No, I'm still out. Still taking six, seven. Okay. That's an awesome question though. If we go outside of what's, what's the tall that's too tall where you go, no, I'll be five, nine. Not, not only too tall, but like, you're not an athlete. You're just that you're just a guy. <laughs> well, maybe not yet. <laughs> All right. You, you're your current age, so you can't become a professional athlete. Oh, what is uh, the height that right. is too tall that you're like, eh, it actually oh, again, be 5'10"? Not yet. I mean, you know, if I were 6'10", you think... If I were 6'10", do you think I'd be talking to any of you guys? <laughs> I think whatever height where my organs are like, uh, have like shorter life than the regular person. That's that's when I'm like, all right, that's too tall. <laughs> like, that's, I don't know if his heart's cut out for this. <laughs> I think you know that's what? Too that's tall. a really mature answer from Kyle that I didn't expect is you got to start worrying about organ failure. At what that's point true. is organ failure a real question? Yeah, By the way, the reason, the reason the 610 thing happened, because I, I told you about my, my one buddy who's a couple years older than me. He was a pretty good high school football player and he wasn't huge by any means. But when he would get hammered, his go-to would he be like, if I were six five, I wouldn't be talking to you fucking guys. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be blacked out. He would only do it when he was blacked out. So we'd be like, wow, there's some weird deep thing where once you get that banged up, like you start going. And I just always thought it was one of the funniest things ever. He would just well, you know how many you know how many guys at the Y that are like five ten that are like, oh, if I was just six five, I'd be in the NBA. And you're like, you know how many guys say that? Like, yeah. no. Sorry. How many six five guys actually are in the NBA? <laughs> All right, yeah. so back to it. No, that's a good question, though. Is six, Rudy, would you? I'm 5'10", so you guys are all taller than me. What about 5'8"? Would you do 5'8 or 7 feet? 5'8". Am, am I in the NBA? If I'm in the NBA, I'd rather be 7 feet. But your life is harder. Am I a millionaire? Sure. But, like, it's, you there's, are? Still a lot of, there's still some girls out there that like short guys, you know? What's the average girl? It's like five, you know, five. You had a, gym, a gymnast. 5'7"? Like 4'11". You're fine. 
gymnast? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Seven feet. Well, you just said life. no to six six. So, like, let's just move on. We've just all moved right, on. Fine. Yeah. All right. Okay. Here we go. This guy's six four two twenty. I think we covered it. About a month ago, I got invited uh, by a friend to sit in an all-you-can-eat suite college basketball game in a pretty cool city. We'll leave it out uh, with twelve other guys all around the same age. My friend won the suite uh, during a golf outing. Has no connection whatsoever to the owners of the box. Pre-visit, we were told. All right, so we're talking about. 12, 13 guys, same age. Guy wins the suite, doesn't pay for the suite. All right. Pre-visit, we were told alcohol would not be included. As suite rookies, our crew was shocked to find that when we got into the suite, there was a fully stocked refrigerator filled with tons of drinks, beer, wine, seltzer, even soft drinks. As you can imagine, we all had a couple of drinks with some guys really getting after and others having a relaxed night out. Even if everyone was drinking moderately, two beers apiece for about 15 guys at the stadium prices are not cheap. Um... And we know some guys had way more than two beers. Fast forward to the group text the next day when the guy that won the suite is telling us that we all need to throw in 75 bucks a piece to cover the alcohol consumed. I personally had three beers. Should I eat the loss and just pretend in my mind I'm paying for tickets or say something about paying for some other fuck sticks night out? I guess some would say I'm on the outside of this friend group. It could also be said that I did the impossible by infiltrating this group at 28. Uh, but thanks to an awesome bachelor party, a couple of great weddings, just always being down to do anything and have a good time. I've gotten to be super close with most of the group. Love the pod. Keep up the good work. All right. You just answered your own question, man. You're in with this friend group. You're psyched about being in the friend group. You worked it in at a later age of 28. You got invited to a suite. So you didn't pay for the tickets on top of everything else. Yes, I know it sucks when you're the adult and you're like, I just want to have a couple beers. I'm not in a contest to see how many beers I can race through by the time they t- kick us out of the suite. 75 bucks for three beers is too much. But you know what? friendship costs we don't even have a number for that not right? being that guy yeah worth 75 so, bucks and especially if you're the new guy so you want to make waves as as the new guy that's been welcomed into this group by saying hey that's kind of bullshit i get it there's a part of me too that would go hey i had a couple beers now i gotta pay 75 bucks for this whole thing but let's talk about all of the costs. Let's talk about insurance. Let's talk about transportation. Let's talk about refrigeration. Let's talk about lease agreements. All right. You need to understand the full cost of stuff and your full cost of being in this crew, which again was a free suite. And yes, yeah, some guys take the beers and the ratios are all off. Venmo them the 75 bucks. All right. That's it. Anybody? I would agree. I think uh, I would assume that you spend at least a hundred bucks on a night like that. So the fact that it was under a hundred bucks, if you said like $300, I'd be like, that's a little aggressive, but I don't know, man. Like it's just part of the night. It's part of going out. Like, yeah, you get the free suite, but like, think about, you have to, you know, put that in there. I would say 75 bucks is nothing. Move on. Yeah. I'm prepared to be completely hosed whenever I go out with a group of people. So I'm just prepared. I'm prepared for the worst always. And he, they got to eat. They got to eat too. Yeah. So, uh, I don't. Here's I the don't thing: like why. on the surface, if you're like you get to hang out with your friends in a suite and it only costs you seventy five bucks, have a couple beers, like you take that every single time. We have too many guys, man, that have an obsession with the ledger book of life, where you're just always worried. If you have good friends, it usually evens out, except for one guy who's always sucks in the group. And I'm not. You're clearly. I'm not even accusing you of being that guy, but I don't know. The shoe fits. And you usually have a side group text without that guy on it to talk about him. I'd pay 75 bucks for 12 cool friends. <laughs> 12? That's too many. I can't have 12 friends. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. If you're sitting at a bar at your own tab, like that's a controllable thing. But if you decide to go out to a place where you're not in control, 
You just got to be ready to be host. And you weren't even host, so that's the good news. Yeah, and he, no offense, but like anybody who starts going like, hey guys, how are we doing the bill? Like you always lose. You always lose in that spot. And I know there's going to be so many people listening to this who are like, hey, that's bullshit. The guy only had three beers. It does. Okay, how many suites have you been invited to lately? Mm. You know, check in with your sweet stats too if you're going to debate that we're wrong on this one. That's life <laughs> advice. Kyle, Steve, what's up? Um, we've got a great show on Friday. We're going to talk with Van about a million different things. Van Lathan, who we just love having on the pod whenever we can. And also Austin Rivers, NBA player. Fired up, unless they cancel, because NBA players sometimes don't always show up to their Zooms. But we're, we have a lot of hope for this one. Thanks. Subscribe. Listen. Spotify. Ringer Podcast. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.